or microphone works. You can take your Bibles and or and or devices and turn to Second Corinthians chapter five. Second Corinthians chapter five. Mentioned a couple things to you, and then we'll get started. Number one, next Sunday is what? What? And we're having what? Easter eggs. No. We're going to have two services, one at 9.15 and one, this one at 10.50. Well, there's a reason we have two services on Easter. Why is that? Because it makes me feel good. No. Why? Well, that's good. Bring a friend. I like that. Because there'll be more people here than normal. And the point is this. You've you got to decide which service you're coming to. Normally, people who are visiting or only come on Easter are probably going to come to the 1050 service. That's normal. normally what happens. Not always. But if you guys, if you come at 915, just remember that when we get done, it'll be incumbent upon me for us to get done that you got to get off the parking lot, so what? Fred's doesn't come get us. Our legal name is the church next door to Fred's. So we got to get off the parking lot so that others can get in. Now, having said that, something else I would really encourage you to do over the next week. Please pray about our services next Sunday, specifically for this reason. There are a lot of people, we're, none of us are dumb, there are a lot of people who go to church on Easter who don't go the rest of the year. Meaning, more than likely, there are a number of people who will be here next Sunday who are not Christians. They're not born again. Or they're maybe not walking where they need to be with Jesus. You pray as we're heading into that Sunday that God really uses what we do next week. So I'll give you something to put on your prayer list for next week. Now, one other thing I do want to mention quickly, and then we will get into today's message. As you, we're just kind of doing things differently now, and so just you got to pay attention. It's got to stay focused. Bring your A game, all right? Are y'all awake? Come on, you got to step up your game. You'll notice behind me, stage looks different, doesn't it? Looks better, doesn't it? I did all that. <laughs> now, had you said it didn't look better, then I would tell you who really did it. Well, since you said it looks better, I'm not going to tell you. Yeah, I am. Uh, a lot of people in our, in our worship ministry came up here, spent yesterday, most of yesterday up here, some even nights before, painting the stained glass windows and moving stuff, redoing. It's just uh, beautiful, and I want to thank. I'm not going to mention their names because I'll leave somebody out, but I know there's a bunch of people in the, in the worship ministry and just helping out, and you know who you are, and we're really grateful that the I was a little worried about painting the stained glass windows. They came out of our original building in Bartlett. We built 1984. When I came, it was not even built yet. It was just uh, we were meeting in a rent building. That was, they were in the process of building that. We opened that in June of 1984, and we had a chapel. Chapel may have been the next. I can't remember if it was the original building or the very next one, but that's where those windows came from. It's from our original building in Bartlett, 
and uh, a lot of fond memories in that room. And you know, it's not a, we don't worship a building. Obviously, we wouldn't be in here if we worshipped a building. Um, but you do have fond memories of things that God did in, in uh, particular places and rooms. Uh, I, I did a couple of weddings in there where the grooms passed out. Funny things like that. Uh, my little baby girl, who was in the process of painting the stained glass windows, was saved in the room where the stained glass windows used to hang and things like that. So that's uh, just kind of interesting. It, by the way, it turned out great. Y'all did a great job. Let's thank them. All right, if you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and, and get your handout out, out, your handout out. Today, in the calendar of the church, historically, what are we celebrating? It's known as Palm Sunday, and if you read the accounts in the Gospels, particularly in Matthew, and Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, all in fulfillment of prophecy, and he is coming as the, the, the king, king of the Jews. He's coming to be the Messiah. It's that we call it Passion Week. This Thursday night at Belmont Church here in, in Bart in Bartley, here in Arlington, they do a Monday Thursday service once a year and, and I get to be they ask me, they're very gracious, I get to be one of the speakers. So if you have, if you're available Thursday night at seven o'clock, it's Belmont Missionary Baptist Church right there across from the, the park where the little FedEx stuff is, right across the street on that corner. It's really a beautiful time and I've been doing it for several years and it's just great to bring uh, several of the churches in town have people that come and in the area come and speak. We all, each of us do one of the last uh, words of Christ on the cross and get all that done in an hour and get seven preachers to get up there in an hour and keep and get done. It's, uh, it's a miracle of God. I get to go last this year, which means I get a minute, 17 seconds to do my last words of Jesus on the cross. So as, as we celebrate Passion Week, and what's so beautiful when you study that historically and you read about it in the scriptures, he comes in riding into Jerusalem, and what are they screaming? And they're throwing the, the palm branches in his way, and what are they screaming? Hosanna in the name of the Lord, and they're praising him as the coming king. Four days later, those same people were screaming what? Crucify him. And it just shows you people. It shows you the mentality of crowd control, mind control, and how good Satan is at what he does and the Pharisees were used and how they took the one they thought was the Lord and the Messiah and were convinced that he needed to be crucified. And so what we're looking at last week, this week, and then heading into Easter Sunday next week, if you look on your handout, is the promise of resurrection, how significant this moment in history is to us as human beings, it's specifically to us as Christians, the fact that once we come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior and you begin to study the Word of God, we understand how significant that resurrection was. That that moment when Jesus of Nazareth, who was the Christ, physically walked out of that tomb, rose from the dead, not spiritually, not in someone's imagination, but physically came back from the dead. At that moment, Scripture tells us he conquered sin, and death. And the promise that given to us is, we began to look at last week, is as a resulting promise for that, us is we have a home because he bought for us eternal life through his death, burial, and resurrection for my sins. And when I, by faith, repentance, trust Jesus Christ as my Savior, I'm born again. 
I'm given, as we began to look at last week, some twos. Last week we talked about the two dwellings, the earthly tent we currently have and the heavenly one that Jesus is getting ready for us. When he comes back, we will be with him forever, and he's getting our place ready. We talked about our two outfits that we have, the clothes we now wear on earth, in this tent, who we are, and the burden that we carry, that we're mortal now, but one day, our perspective, our eternal perspective on everything is we realize one day we will get new clothes. We're going to get, it's an, our earnest desire, we're going to get a new body, a body fit for heavenly living. Paul, in 2 Timothy, the last thing Paul wrote before he died to Timothy his son in the faith, as he's passing the baton to Timothy to carry on the ministry of taking the gospel to the Gentiles, which, by the way, is us, our ancestors. As Paul was passing the baton to, to Timothy, one of the things he said in 2 Timothy, it's so poignant, he says, I am being poured out, the time being poured out as a sacrifice, a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. In other words, I know I'm about to die. And when he says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, here's what that meant in the Old Testament picture. A drink offering was a libation that they would take and pour on a, another sacrifice, a sin sacrifice that might be brought to the temple or to the tabernacle. And they would take this libation and pour it on that to enhance it, to make it smell better, and to make it like wafting up to God as a beautiful sacrifice. So Paul says, the time of my departure is at hand, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. Here's what he meant. I have, and he said in that same writing to Timothy, I've run the race. My time is now to go. And the word departure that we talked about last week, the tent and all of that, the word departure that he uses there with Timothy means to strike your tent, tear it down, and go home. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That's where we were last week. We understand we have two homes. We got a tent right now that we're in. We've grown in it. We survive in it. This is where we are. Paul says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. What, that, what he meant for Timothy to understand was, my life and all that I have done and all that I've gone through, all that I've taught you, all that I've modeled for you, and for all the churches and all the burden that I've carried for them and all that have gone through physically and emotionally and being, being ostracized by his family and his people and in everything, to follow Jesus Christ. That is a privilege that I can be poured out as a drink offering to enhance your life, Timothy, and the lives of others as I go away that you get to carry on. And 2,000 years later, that's what it means for us to be the church. That's what it means to be a Christian, is that we get the privilege, whatever period of time God gives us on planet Earth, to be a drink offering on behalf of our children, on behalf of our grandchildren, on behalf of others we might have an opportunity to, to share our faith with or to live out our faith before, whoever it might be. And whatever place God puts us, we understand this dichotomy of the twos. So last week we talked about the two dwellings and the two outfits. So if you'll go to number three on your handout, today we're going to look at two plans. Two plans that God has. Verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 5. Now he who has prepared us for what we've been talking about, the dwellings, the outfits, going home, he who, who has prepared us for this very thing is God 
who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. So God has two plans for us. The first thing I want you to notice is God's preparation for us. It says there in verse 5, God, our Father, has prepared us for this, and the context is our heavenly home. He's prepared us for that in giving to us the Holy Spirit. So if you'll look at chapter, just for a second, look back at chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, we have this ministry. As we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Verse 8. We're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body on earth, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that on earth, the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body on earth. We who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Verse 14, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. Verse 16, therefore, we do not lose heart even though our outward man is perishing on earth. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day on earth. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory on earth, looking for, forward to the future. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So here's how God is preparing us. All the difficulties and the things that we go through as believers, we're not forsaken. We're hard-pressed, but we know God is with us. We know God is working. We know God has something much bigger, eternal weight of glory for us. So even though we're in the midst on earth, many times of incredibly difficult circumstances, our eyes do not get on the muck and the mire that's around us. What do we focus on? our eternal weight of glory that Jesus Christ bought for us at Calvary and when he rose from the dead, solidified, and it is our present possession that we will cash in when we die, when we go home and we get our inheritance. It's such an unbelievably magnificent thought. When you get an eternal perspective on the temporal, temporary, he calls it light affliction, and in his case it was anything but light when we look at it, when you understand that there's nothing that we face that's any worse than crucifixion, that's what Jesus went through for us to buy for us eternity. So what we understand is that our focus is on what awaits us. It is our current possession. So he gives us a promise in the end of verse 5. He's given us the Spirit as a guarantee. I love this verse. I remember the first time it was taught to me, and I finally really understood what it meant. Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit. And that's what he's talking about here. When he says it's a guarantee, it depends on your translation. But let me tell you in the original language what it meant, because then we'll understand the picture. Original language, it meant what term we use today, earnest money. If I give you earnest money, what am I saying? I'm going to buy your house, or whatever it might be, and later you'll get what? The rest of it. Now, we get all the Holy Spirit, but we get a glimpse of the glory now, and then we get the rest of it in eternity. 
The other thing this word means in the original language is an engagement ring. And most people, when they get married, unlike my wife and I, she, the woman gets an engagement ring. And when you're a janitor making a buck sixty an hour, you don't buy an engagement ring. But we made it. Now, what does an engagement ring mean? It means I make you a promise. You put this ring on her finger, what are you promising to the person you're giving the engagement ring to? That you will be my bride. Who, what are we called in Scripture? We are the bride of Christ, and the Holy Spirit is like our engagement ring. We haven't seen Jesus yet, but we will. The marriage supper of the Lamb is the first great celebration in all eternity. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we are special honored guests. We are the bride of Jesus Christ, and we worship him forever. That's who we are. So you get the Holy Spirit as a down payment. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Bible says this, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom? Jesus, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee, same word again, of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. God, to seal it for us so we would understand what we have in Jesus Christ, who is God the Son. You see the Trinity here. God the Son bought it for us. God the Father gave to us God the Holy Spirit to seal the deal. What's the greatest thing God could give you? Himself. And that's what he gave you. Jesus gave himself willingly, voluntarily, died in my place that I might be redeemed. When I am redeemed, he seals me with, God seals me with himself, the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, in our midst, in our lives, for our temporal time in this body until we get our new one. For our temporal time on this planet, earth, until we go to heaven. All about the dichotomy of temporal versus permanent. That's the message you see, particularly in the New Testament, but throughout the Bible. God looks at things eternally. Man looks at things temporally. Temporally. Like, quick example. When, when Nicodemus, who, by the way, was an expert in the law, he had most of the Old Testament memorized. He was the teacher of Israel. And he comes to Jesus and wants to know about the kingdom. And Jesus said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, who knew more about Scripture than anybody on planet Earth, asked Jesus what? You mean I got to go back inside my mom's womb? That's how ignorant he was. He knew it, but he didn't know the God of it. See the difference? When you're born again, God takes up residence in your life. He gives you the greatest thing he has, himself, his life, and it changes you. So we have two dwellings, two outfits. We see God's two plans. And the next thing on your handout, we have two confidences from God. Verse 6, so we're always confident we are on planet Earth, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Back to verse 6. So, that word in the original language means therefore. In light of everything he's been talking about, the two bodies, the two dwellings, 
the two outfits, the two plans, all of those things that he's been talking about. Therefore, because we understand all of those things, God is real in our lives. God is at work in us. This is what we understand. God is not only at work in us. Jesus gave us the promise, I'm at work for you. I'm getting your place ready. Another thing that the Bible tells us is after Jesus rose from the dead, in the great church creed to the century, put it this way, he rose from the dead, he ascended where? To the right hand of the Father, which in Scripture is the highest seat of honor, power, majesty, and authority in the universe, the right hand of God the Father. He ascended to that. You know what the next thing it says is? He ever lives to make intercession for us, his children, his bride, his body, you, me. Jesus perpetually is at the right hand of the throne of the Father to intercede on my behalf, to intercede on your behalf. When Satan becomes the, is called the accuser of the brethren, and Randy gives him a lot to be accused about, Jesus said, I got that one. I got him. The blood covers him. Now, the Holy Spirit deals with me and how I am supposed to live, but positionally and permanently, I am a child of God. And Jesus perpetually is at the right hand of the Father, interceding on my behalf, kind of like having an attorney. He's a whole lot better than one of those you're going to get off a billboard or Morgan & Morgan. Or for those of you old enough to remember Perry Mason, who never lost a case. I think he did once. Jesus is your perpetual attorney with the Father, and you cannot lose. You cannot lose because of what you have. So you have two confidences. In your earthly home, your tent, right now, as difficult at times as it is living in that tent, you also know what awaits you, a heavenly home. So we're always confident. Verse 6 again. That literally means we're never afraid of the future and we're not afraid to depart. I was sharing with my class this morning, one of the most exciting things about being a believer is understanding that despite psychics and others who are out there, you realize that we actually know the future. We've read the end of the book and we win because we also read the other parts of the book and we've already won. In Christ, our hope of glory, confident expectation of glory. We know whom we have believed, and we know what awaits us. We know where we're going to spend eternity because we are in Christ. We know, like he told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. I know, look at verse 8, we're confident, yes, we're rather, uh, yes, well, pleased rather to be absent from the body and be pleasant, present with the Lord, knowing whether we're in our earthly bodies or in our heavenly bodies, we are always in Christ. Therefore, verse 7. This is so significant, verse 7. We walk by what? Not by sight. Now, for just a moment, let's think about that. Walk means live, moment by moment. We live, moment by moment, by faith, not by sight. Because if you simply look at what's around you, and what's on the horizon, and what you see coming at you, and, you get, and that's what you're focused on, it is easy to get down, isn't it? It is easy to be afraid. It is easy to say, what am I going to do? But as a believer, we walk by faith. Faith, and that is not a blind leap in the dark. 
talked about it many times. It means confidence, a sense of trust permanently in the one who has proven himself to be trustworthy. I know Christ can take care of me. How do I know? Because he's taking care of this and he's taking care of this. He created the universe. That's a pretty big deal. He's the one that's spoken into existence. That's my Savior. That's my God. That's my advocate with the Father. So, yes, I'm, I'm going to have difficult times. The Bible makes it very clear. I'm going to be persecuted. Satan's not going to be happy. So there are going to be difficult times. What Jesus said is, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. When he said, I'm going to, one of the other things he said in the upper room discourse is, not only am I going to send the Holy Spirit, it's a beautiful term that he uses. He says, I will not leave you orphans. I'll be with you. And then he said, the Holy Spirit, whom I'm going to send, also called the comforter, the literal means the one who comes alongside to help in time of need. Jesus said, he'll not only be with you, I, Jesus, have been with you, but he'll not only be with you, he'll also be where? In you. And the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, and he's omniscient, and he's omnipotent, all-powerful. That's who indwells you. That's who your guarantee is. That's who your earnest money is. That's the one that's involved in your life. And so you walk by faith, not focused on the fire. God's got the fire. You just trust him. That's what it means to live by faith. Not a blind leap in the dark, but a trust in the one who is trustworthy. So we're alive right now on earth. At some point we will not be alive on earth. But then we'll be alive where? In heaven. That's why death is not a problem for us. 1 Corinthians 15 next week, and everybody will be reading and preaching on, says death has no victory in our life. The grave has no sting. Death for us as believers, the Bible says, is the best day of our lives because we go home. We get that new body. We get that new outfit. We get that mansion, that dwelling place that Jesus is getting ready for us. The end of the Great Commission says this, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. Jesus said, you go, you teach them. Make learner followers. And here's the last thing he said. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you always. One of the things I used to encourage, particularly teenagers, when I was doing youth work and they would get down about friends or whatever it might be, one of the things I would share with them is if, if you're born again, if you're a Christian, and it doesn't matter, you don't have to be a teenager, obviously, for, for any of us. You may be the only one in a room, in a building. Sometimes feel like you're the only one in the world that even thinks about you. But guess what? You're never alone. You are never alone. Because Jesus said, I am with you always. He doesn't lie. He doesn't give empty promises. He says, I'm getting your place ready. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be in you. And I am with you always. That's why prayer is such a significant part of our lives, because we're talking to the one who is omnipotent. We're talking to the one who is in control, and we trust him by faith. We trust him. We live in reality daily who is there. Verse 8, so that we're confident, well-pleased to be absent from the body, present with the Lord. My destination 
in my life is I know where my final destination will be. It's heaven. It's also my motivation right now as I live. I'm confident as I live. I'm motivated because I know what I have. I know what awaits me. It's, my, it's already mine. I just got to go get it. If I'm living in a tent somewhere, I'm going on a trip, say we go to Montana and you live in a tent for a week, you know when you leave there and you're coming back home what awaits you. You know what you have. It's yours. That's the idea. I'm in this tent right now. Sometimes it's a groaning and in this body and it's difficult. But I look forward and I can joy in this because I know what I already have. I know when I leave this tent, I'm going home. That's where I want to be. It's my motivation. I want to be. Finally, look at verse 9. So we've got two aims in our lives. Verse 9. Therefore, here it is again. In light of everything we've been talking about, Paul says, we make it our aim. We make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. I want to please God in my present home, right now, on earth. But I also want to please God in my future home. And here's the idea. Because of all the twos we've been talking about, my ambition, the word aim here means my passion for what is excellent and honorable. Look at the verse again. Read it that way. Therefore, we make it our passion for what is excellent and honorable to do what? Be well-pleasing to him or acceptable. That's what the word means. I want to be acceptable to God right now. I want to do things that are excellent. I want to do the things that honor him. We talked about this last week or the week before. When you pray, the two things you pray, no matter what you're praying about, there are two things that you're doing in prayer. One, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. I want to set aside, honor, glorify the name of my Father in everything. And then he goes on to say, your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. They're not up in heaven questioning God, getting committees together and saying, no, let's talk about this. That's not the way we've always done it up here, God. They're not doing that. They're doing exactly what God wants them to do. That's our prayer life. Lord, I want to know your will. I want to do your will, not Randy's, not the group that I'm involved in. Yours, God, what is it? So what are we as an in individual believers, what are we as the church family called Christ's church, what is it that God wants us to do and then do it? That's the idea of the application here in verse 9. We make it our aim. It is our passion to please God, to do what's excellent in his eyes, what honors him. In Romans 14, Paul wrote these words. None of us lives to himself no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Whether we live or die, we're his. So whether it's in this temporal life or in my permanent life, eternity, for all eternity, I want God. When I step into heaven, I want Jesus to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. See, the idea of resurrection is understanding there's a promise that this life is not all there is. 
that there's much more beyond this life. Years ago, the Mediterranean Sea, sailors used to sail around the Mediterranean. The word Mediterranean literally means the middle of the earth. That's why it was named. So they would sail to that, and they did, they did not believe the earth was round. They believed it was flat. So they would go to the Straits of Gibraltar, and they would venture out a little way into that open Mediterranean Sea, and then they would come back to the Straits of Gibraltar. They didn't want to go too far because they felt like what would happen? They'd fall off the end of the earth. So on the great rock of Gibraltar, right in that area, there were some caves in there, and they went in, and in Latin, they chiseled these words, ne plus ultra, which means there is nothing beyond. There is nothing beyond. One day, a guy named Christopher Columbus came along, and he sailed out, and he came back. And he told them all the marvelous things he had seen in the Americas and that area that the earth was not flat. He found a new world, and he came back, and, and they went back into that cave, and they chiseled away. There's nothing beyond. And in Latin, they just left plus ultra, which is there is more beyond. See, what we know as Christians is because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, there is what? More beyond. And because we know there is more beyond, how do we live? We're motivated because we know our destination and we want others to know the resurrected Jesus Christ, that he is our Lord, he is our God. Think about it again next Sunday. and Please pray toward that Sunday. Not just here, not just in our city, but literally all over our world, there'll be people celebrating Easter who don't know the God of Easter. They don't know that Jesus is our Passover. Paul wrote to this same church at Corinth, Christ is our Passover. Easter is not even a biblical word. It's a, it's a pagan word that we adopted, and that's okay. But literally what we're celebrating is Jesus is our Passover, that death passes over us. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. He is, when John saw him, the Baptist saw him the first time, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God, Passover, who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. Aren't you glad he came? You see, that's the message we have to share. We're glad he came. And if he hadn't risen from the dead, we'd have nothing to be glad about. But he did. Would you bow your heads, please? Just everybody, just for a moment, bow your head. Father, we do want to pause before you as we, we do every week. And I pray in our lives individually as families and, and as individuals throughout the week in our prayer life that we would always begin with adoration for who you are. That because you are a God of grace, mercy, and love, you sent Jesus Christ to die, not just model perfection for us, but to die so that we might live, to die so that we might have hope, to come back from the dead so we do not have to be afraid to die, to come back from the dead so that we can know it is finished and our sins are paid for. So, Lord, I, as Christians, everyone who is here in this room who is born again, I pray we would pray that our lives would mean something because Jesus rose from the dead that we would focus on the person of Christ, we would share the person of Christ, and let people know he's not who you think. Let me tell you who he is, what he did when he rose from the dead. 
And even as we think about the promise of resurrection, that it means something right now because of what it does mean in the future and what it meant in the past, that it is all history. It focuses on that moment when Jesus walked out of that tomb. So, Lord, I pray as we sing these final two songs, as we listen, each one of us, starting with me, would just simply take this time to worship, to pray, to adore you, Maybe look at our lives. If we're not a Christian, say, why not? Jesus died for me. Here, Lord, take my life. Forgive me. And for those of us that are Christians, we'd be thrilled and excited about sharing our faith, living it because of what we possess, the promise of resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.